0: This podcast is brought to you by Rev.com. Streamline your post-production workflow with fast and expensive transcripts and captions. Just say the word at Rev.com. Hey,
1: everybody. This is Charles Hain here for the No Film School podcast, the week of March 12th, 2020. We are going to be talking about a lot of stuff. We're kicking off talking about COVID-19 and its further implications for the filmmaking industry. We're going to be talking about South by Southwest. We're going to be talking about best practices for remote work. Then we're going to have some non-virus related tech news from Blackmagic and a an, non-virus related Ask No Film School from a man named Robert. So all of that this week on the No Film School podcast. I'm here with George Edelman, editor in chief. Hey. I'm here with writer Michelle De La Tour. Hi, everyone. And the first thing we're going to talk about is specifically the impacts we're starting to see here in North America. I know international uh, filmmakers have been seeing impacts for a few more months than we have of the COVID-19 virus. I teach at one of the big three film schools in New York. Uh, we I talk about this a lot. We have not canceled our classes, but the other two big film schools in New York, NYU and Columbia, are both online only at this point and at least for the next week or two. So there are real implications in the film industry that are sort of happening at the educational level, at the professional level. I work on a studio a lot. And I will say that anecdotally, I was in the parking lot yesterday taking a phone call and I've never seen the parking lot so empty. So I don't know. I mean, in the middle of TV season, like the parking lot will be that empty in Christmas or whatever. But in the middle of a busy season with shows shooting, I don't know if shows are going to Skeleton crews. Like I don't have, like I haven't heard any reports of Are productions slimming down or whatnot? The weird thing about the film industry is yes, technically like a hundred people all working together is a lot. So like a hundred people on a soundstage is a lot of people, but compared to like a big live event like Coachella or South by or NAB, it's not actually that large. So it doesn't feel like I haven't felt like it's that anybody is about to shut. It doesn't feel like TV production, at least in New York is about to shut down. I don't know if anybody has heard about that in any other major cities. Um, and then the biggest news, obviously, is not only has South by Southwest canceled, been canceled by the city, the city of Austin canceled it, uh, South, the organizers wanted to continue. But then the big drama has been their insurance policy did not cover pandemics. And so they, have, they just this morning announced they're laying off a third of their full-time employees. So 50 people just lost their jobs. And it's really heartbreaking because... Look, in an ideal world, we would all have the perfect insurance policy. We all would have read it end to end. We would have thought of every possibility. And I've been in in meetings where we were evaluating insurance and things came up like, ooh, I'm not seeing X. Shouldn't X be part of this policy? But somehow pandemics slipped through. And I've actually talked to some other people that also are canceling events where it turns out pandemics weren't in their policy. And um, much smaller events, not making the national stage, where they were like, yeah, and we went through this before with SARS, and we wanted it added to the policy, and somehow it slipped through the cracks. You know, I don't know if specifically South by tried it. I don't know exactly the situations there, it's, insurance contracts are very long and very complicated. Um, But it is one of those crazy things to remember that, like, to do a big live event like this, like, you're spending, the organizers are spending so much money and like so many of those deposits are paid months out you have to have so much cash on hand to get through this and if you're not in a situation like very few live events could survive this kind of thing i don't know if it's still canceled but you know for forever one of the biggest events in my la calendar was an event called sunset junction and um then Sunset Junction, it wasn't an insurance issue. They had some other permitting issues. And then one day it was just gone. And this was the biggest LA event in my life for 15 years. And then one day they were like, hey, guys, we can't keep going. And now it's just not a thing anymore. I, I think South by will be back. But they've said they might not be able to be back by next year.
2: We have a story up. And I saw this on the feeds. It's everywhere now. But um, <clears throat> yeah there are concerns from the South by Southwest leadership that they'd be able to put on South by 21 because the amount of money lost and uh, the amount of scrambling, the last minute, just, just cleaning up, just getting it all put away. And the local economy, there's such a domino effect with stuff like this, like $355 million estimated lost by the Austin economy during this time frame, That's a lot of money um, and a lot of businesses and people who's come to depend on or expect that influx. Um, but the other thing we haven't addressed yet, and I wanna hear what you guys think about it. And we're working on a bigger piece about this that'll show up later on nofilmschool.com. But w- let's talk about the impact on the people who have movies that we're going to be at South by Southwest this year. I know a few people who um, had stuff that was gonna premiere. um, Someone in the shorts program. Um, I know we know someone who was in the features. And it's crazy. I mean, this is a huge festival, a huge opportunity for these filmmakers. And suddenly it's gone. And there's no, um, there's no like, reparation. <laughs> you know you know what I mean? Like, there's no, uh, oh, well, you know, Tribeca will premiere you <laughs> now. I mean, they might, but like, it's not like a given. And that's just crazy, isn't it? I mean, imagine, I've never had a film at a major film festival. There's only a few major film festivals, as we all know. And there's only a few films that go to them, really. I mean, there's quite a few, but as far as like just from someone like a young or up and coming filmmaker or a filmmaker without a ton of credits. I mean, like we know Judd Apatow had a movie, Spike Jones had a movie. There's a lot of people who had movies at South by, and they're hurt too. This isn't to say that this isn't going to affect them. These affect these movies significantly. I've been working with the press for these movies because I was supposed to see a lot of them and interview a lot of these filmmakers for this very podcast, in fact. But they they're affected at a different level than the people who lost a shot at that audience. That's just devastating. I don't know if there's any other way to put it. I would be devastated. Um, You know, that the turnaround on that and the disappointment and what can you do? There's nobody to blame. It's just awful.
0: What I want to recognize is the power of film Twitter and community in a moment like this, because what was interesting about this was, This is a community that's ready to screen films that we're going to play at South by Southwest, and people have offered to provide coverage to do reviews and to share stories. Um, And so if you have a film that was at South by Southwest and you're looking to still get coverage, I would peruse the South by Southwest and Twitter and film Twitter feeds. I mean, South by Southwest was already an amazing festival, and really it was an amazing community, and I think people really come together and pitched proposals. There's been things like, Hey, should, should Vimeo do a virtual film fest for folks? So there are, I think people recognize that there's a possibility of trying to give coverage to folks. That's not the same as giving.
2: No, that's a great point. And thanks. Thanks for bringing that up because people may not know about that. Audiences may not know about that or outlets or, or or filmmakers, but yeah, we are still going to cover, like we're not, we're still excited to cover everything we were going to cover or try to, um, but it just changes. I guess what I was saying is, what I started to say, but I derailed myself, and I'm curious what both of you think about it, is if I had a film that got into South by Southwest, I would be excited not just for the exposure that it gets me, but I would be excited to go to South by Southwest with my film and missing that would be the part of the emotional challenge and and the, devastation that I would experience would just be how sad I am that I'm not going to get that experience because it's a very, I mean, it's a special
1: thing. Oh my God. Especially if it's like your first big feature or your first thing that could yeah. have yeah. had the opportunity where, you know, you'd been, especially because, you know, South by, like, many people, South By is the right home for them, but it's also the way it goes in the sort of application cycle. A lot of people who got into South By were probably rejected by Sundance. Not all. Some people are like, I want South By or nothing. That's my home. But a lot of people may be rejected by Sundance and Slamdance and then get into South By. And so it's like a bit of a... It's a long, complicated journey for a lot of filmmakers to find their audience and then to have it yanked from you. Uh, must suck. It's it's interesting you brought up Rebecca. I, I think Tribeca will probably end up canceling as well. New York is in a little bit of a moment, but it it doesn't it seem like there is some sort of opportunity to be like, okay, where is a reasonably remote place? Like, could we find an off-season ski resort in West Virginia and just hold like the South by Tri South Becca makeup festival for like june for a couple days to like screen everything and everybody get together and like because it won't be tied to because both tribeca and south by have like 50 million other events going on that are like technology and whatever but if it was just like we just did the film festival and only like 10 to fifteen thousand people came and it was june or july so maybe it's burned itself out a little bit i would i would totally go to south becca If, if somebody from those organizations wants to make that happen or film Twitter wants to make the hashtag happen, I would, I would go to a ski resort in July to see. Can I also, before I want
2: to just interject, because if anybody who listens knows anybody or is someone who had a film or a project that was going to be there, let us know. Reach out to us and we will help, We want to help because I think that, I mean, we're not the only person place that's going to do this, but I think that it would be good to try and create, to try and pile onto the movement maybe you're talking about, Michelle, to try and get as much exposure to those projects as possible and make sure people know about them or help try to cover them in any way we can just to get everybody's awareness of them out there. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of people working very hard to do that, but I just want to throw yeah. that out there.
0: And I wish that there was something similar for music and EDU and Interactive because I don't think that they have the same kind of flexibility. I wish that there was something in place for the music festival and EDU and Interactive, too, that could be very similar in, in the sense that we were giving coverage or providing some sort of opportunities for folks that were going to go or perform for the first time at South by Southwest Um I don't know what there is on the table for musicians. I know that some musicians are still doing smaller scale shows in Austin if they're already there, they're already playing to be there. Um, we'll see. We'll see if there's a try. I'm going to call it West as opposed to South Becca.
2: I, I want to mention that we, we got right into the South. South by Southwest is like one of the big recent developments in what's going on with the coronavirus or COVID-19 fallout or reaction. But I want to bring up that, that it's not limited to that. And in the last week, if you if you're if you haven't been kind of following these stories, it's everywhere. It's had a huge effect on the economy. All these things are going to affect our community and industry. Like it's just impossible not to. Beyond things like South by Southwest, um, it's going to affect people's ability to go to movie theaters. Like you said, Charles, it's going to affect people's ability to go to shoots or their comfort level with those sorts sure. of things. I think we can talk a little bit about both. Maybe what filmmakers can do or, or how they can approach this, um, and segue into some of those kinds of conversations. We all, we've all heard about like best practices, you know, avoiding the, the handshakes, coughing to your elbow, hand sanitizer, if you can find any out there, because I think it's sold out everywhere. Um, you can buy wipes and hand washing and hand washing for a long time and singing songs when you hand wa- I mean, there's just a lot of stuff, but I don't believe buying tons of toilet paper is necessary though. That seems to be something people are doing as well. Uh, but I don't know, like, what can we talk? What should we like? What do you guys let's get, you know, Michelle brought up a great point. Um, and I'll kick it over to you for this about working remote and best practices there. Because I think, Every industry is going to start doing that, but certainly our industry is going to start doing it more.
0: There are several tricks of the trade and lots of tools of the trade of working remote that should make this a little easier and hopefully still creative for folks that are doing creative work. So you've probably heard of frame.io or Webster, which kind of helps for live review. I went remote about a year and a half ago. And so I have a couple of lessons, I guess three lessons that I would share. Um, First of all, there are some tools out there that you can use to kind of simulate collaboration. So if you're used to, to throwing ideas around and thinking by drawing on a whiteboard, you can use what's called a Google Jamboard. So, Google Docs has a lot of tools that you can use uh, besides the sheets and the documents, but a Jamboard, which is basically a virtual sticky. Um, I would make sure that you're communicating with people early and often by various means. So that means Slack, email, phone, so that Zoom messages, Zoom chats, so that you're all on the same page because you can't just walk over and ask someone a question anymore by their desk. And this is for the social part, because this is really important. Uh, I make sure to have at least two, two at the very minimum, meetings a day when you're talking to a human. Set up those Zoom chats, Google Hangouts, Skype calls, whatever you need to do to talk to a human colleague as much as you can, because there is there are moments in the remote world where it's just you and your computer. Other best practices, some of which are the same, same for being in an office, using Google Docs and things to track your meeting notes and having um, an objective for your time together. Um, If you're on Zoom calls, ask folks to use their camera, So again, you can talk to a human and gauge responses. That's really important. I was going to ask, (laughs) do you
2: find, so you've been remote, you've been doing remote work for a while. Yeah. Um, Do you find that the FaceTime element is critical? Critical. In the connecting? Yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think it depends on what you're doing. So if I'm collaborate, you know, if I'm talking to a freelancer on the phone, that's one thing I probably don't need to have a video Zoom chat if I'm just talking logistics. But if I'm having a check-in with someone that I manage, if I'm, for for meetings that are things like talking to someone that we manage, we're talking about work and we're talking about feedback, like having a camera there I think is really helpful because you're gauging human interaction and it's just nice to see. I think it's part of what an in-person meeting does, right? You're seeing how things are landing. You're seeing people's reaction to it that you just don't get over the phone.
2: Yeah, um, I find that fascinating, and I, you know, I want to hear Charles. I know has some strong thoughts, and we've talked a, a few times about the effects of being remote and not having inspiration strike in a back and forth when you're. Yeah. What, I mean, not that I would be on these. These days, but like a cigarette break. Yeah, <laughs> but like those kinds of moments where it's like, oh, that that's a great idea. You know, like that just ch- popped in like to the moment. But um, yeah, we do a lot of remote <clears throat> through no film school, and I find that sometimes when you're having these sort of like back and forths you feel like you're missing something or you can't gauge engagement or connection Mm -hmm. or things are sort of lost. And then even on the phone or on like group calls, there's a funny meme going around now that says, I think we're about to find out how many of those meetings we had could have been emails. (laughs) Because like so many people in the world, in every industry are used to these meetings where it's like, "Did did that have to be a meeting or could that have just been communicated? And I always worry that when I call meetings, when I force people into conference calls and video conferences, that they're all thinking, why do we have to do this? Why can't we just get this information in a text form? And I think the reason is like what you just outlined. It's it's helpful to gauge and get feedback and see faces and hear and get interactive something. And I think that as a lot of people shift to a remote workflow right now in the filmmaking where there is so much feedback and give and take, and like, did the joke land? Like, I know from collaborating with writers and editors before, sometimes, like, because I worked in comedy a lot, you want to know what the person's reaction is in the moment. That's going to be very hard for some people to adjust to, I would think. What do you think, Charles?
1: So a few things that jump out at me about this. First off, I definitely want to second Michelle's thing of, I I hate uh, video chat. I almost never do it. But if I'm working exclusively remote, you have to do it because it is... You learn so much, you can tell so much more about someone and how they're receiving an idea and how receptive they are to that um, by looking them at least in the face and seeing how dynamics play out. The second thing I want to really reiterate for people is um, a sensation of bias to action. So in an in-person meeting, what tends to happen is we all know, okay, we have an hour to figure this out. And for the whole meeting, we're like, we're trying to figure this out in the hour. And then we've all been in so many of these meetings where it's the end of the meeting and we're like, okay, well, we've got to figure out this thing. And it's like, okay, we're going to go with that location or that cater or whatever. And you just wrap it up as part of a meeting. Online email threads don't tend to have that Um, sense of finality to them. So one thing I found over the last couple of years when doing a lot of email and remote based work is I am always creating deadlines in every email Mm -hmm. communication I have. And within the email, within the deadline I create, I'm, I am telling people, if you do not chime in by X, here's what's going to happen. So you, you want to make sure you're putting yourself in a situation that isn't like it's Monday and you're like, hey, guys, what do you think? Should we do this? It's like it's Monday and you're like, hey, guys, if I have not heard back from you on Wednesday, I will be doing X. So you're giving people on the team opportunity and time to chime in and redirect you and and uh, an enough window of time to do it. But you're still creating that bias to action where you're not waiting on all 12 people on the email to chime in agree. Everybody sees the thread and they know, oh, I do agree. So I don't have to do anything. And you want to create that biased action and it makes things much more effective in remote team-based decision-making processes. Because without that, you end up, so many things get dropped in remote workflows where, you know, you, you check back in on a thread and you're like, oh, we were still just waiting for this one person to respond and they never did. We should have just taken the action.
2: That is great advice. That's something that I should follow more. We, we try to use some project management tools that help create deadlines and give alerts. And we've tried a, a lot of them. I've used many in my life and career. Um, they all come with pros and cons. But I would also suggest, piggybacking to that point, Charles, that because email and, and the Google Drive, Google Suite, like it becomes sort of an ether where there's nothing, it's hard to find or grab anything or, or pin anything down. And email threads do just kind of go on forever. And people, I've been guilty of it many times, will lose track of something. If you can pin something down in project management, then you can create an alert or a reminder or deadline. And it just kind of, it helps people keep on task, but it's, it's, yeah, it's an adjustment for sure.
0: Plus one for all of the project management tools. I'm a fan of most of them. Big fan, can geek out, won't do it on this podcast right now. I do.
2: <laughs> Wait, I do, just tell me what's your favorite. What do you think is the best one? I'm curious for my. I think opinion.
0: that they serve different purposes. So I use Trello personally for personal small tasks, but I would never use it for a project plan. For that, I would use Smartsheet or Google Sheets, depending on how interactive I want it to be with the people that I'm working with. Because Smartsheet has smart tools and it will email people and all that jazz. Google sheets doesn't do
2: that sheet. Okay. Yep. So i found working remote or with people who are remote. It's really helpful to have people who are versed in these things and also actively interested in utilizing them. Sometimes people are just like, yeah, it's, it's going to slow me down. And so then you don't use it. I've done that myself, but I think as everybody has to start shifting to more remote work, be gung ho about figuring out the best ways to do it. So as soon as, so you can be the one that people want to work with on these remote tasks, like following up quickly, jumping into whatever project management tools they offer, you know, things like that.
0: I was curious. So one of the things I've seen pop up now that was lightly talked about, but no, I feel like now has really become part of the conversation is cloud computing. So whether or not you can take, you know, your editing system home with you is a, Is a big deal. It's in the office. So have you guys thought about investing in those? Have you heard any conversations around cloud computing for editing systems?
1: NAB, one of the big themes of last year was trying to take better advantage of the cloud. That was like a thing that showed up a lot. You had um Frame.io was showing off their direct to cloud workflow solutions, and frame.io had a really great integration with Resolve. And then uh, you know, Adobe has been pushing moving more and more of their content to the cloud, especially with um. Adobe, it was originally called Adobe Clip. Maybe now it's, it might still be called Adobe Clip, their mobile-based editing platform. Um, And what, here's the thing. I think that there, uh, I think what's likely to happen, I think the hope we all originally had was that one of these editing companies, like, you know, there's the big four, Apple, Adobe, Blackmagic, and um Avid. And we all thought, all right, well, one of them will build a cloud tool set that will be usable and robust and wonderful. And then we will start moving these projects to the cloud. I've tried to do multiple projects over Adobe Cloud where I was like, oh, I have a collaborator in LA. We'll move all the media to the cloud. We'll both be able to edit. It's a total shit show. I do not recommend it. I don't know anybody doing it. And then what was interesting about last year was, you know, especially with a lot of stuff happening around Frame.io, was at least Blackmagic saying, we're going to stay out of cloud. We're going to integrate with other people. And then they built a really fancy integration with Frame.io. Uh, Final Cut has built a really fancy integration with Frame.io. I think Frame.io is going to make the play. And I think Whipster is going to also try and do the same thing where they're going to say we're going to be the cloud back end. Like it's not just going to be work in progress review, because right now you use both those tools primarily for I have a cut. I want notes on it. I put it up. I get notes. They're both amazing notes giving tools. The real opportunity is I put all, you know, from set, I put all my dailies there. And then I'm editing, you know, and the way it works in Resolve is Frame.io shows up as a hard drive in your Resolve Media tab, and you can just be cutting, you know, from that while you work, uh, generating proxies on the fly. That I think is going to be interesting. I honestly think we're still a couple of years away. I have I haven't been to a thing yet where I was where somebody I knew. You know, the, I'm seldom, what's the David Bowie quote, the first one to the bleeding edge gets cut. I'm almost never the first person doing a thing just because, I don't know, I'm doing like nine things. And the first person to do something is usually the person who's like, I'm doing one thing and I'm going to be like- Great quote. Yeah. And great yeah. reference to I, I love that quote. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, I'm often the second person. Like I stop by one friend's company and they figured out this thing and they're showing me something, you know, made out of like- lawnmower parts and they're like we made it work we made cloud editing work and then six months later i'm doing it and (laughs) then a year later everybody i know is doing it i haven't been to a shop yet where somebody's like we made cloud work and all it requires is a garage door opener like it it still isn't something that i know any anywhere i've been there there that thing that we're all waiting for, the like real indie solution isn't going. I think Frame.io, I mean, they hired Michael Cioni and Michael Cioni's whole job at Frame.io now is is set to cloud solutions. So they have someone with a, a history of success between Light Iron and um, Plaster City um, running that division. I don't actually think it's the company's fault, like any specific company. It's going to be really hard because of shitty internet. I think you're going to see cloud-based editing solutions roll out in countries with better internet first because right now the big technical hurdle is you want like big media up on the cloud and you want it to stream down to your computer at a, at a resolution that looks good enough to work with, but fits through internet pipes. And I think that's a big challenge uh, from what I hear. Adobe's clip thing where, and, and what that is, is like, I can shoot on set. I can start editing on my iPad and the drive back. And then when I get back to the office, I can like bring it up in normal premiere um, and that's all cloud based. I think that there are people using that I hear, but it's more of like a YouTuber, quick turnaround kind of job I haven't heard of. So far, I haven't been to like Vice and heard Vice be like, oh, we're now using that for our field reporting. I haven't like seen that start to take off in other places. What I was going to say a second ago, um, and I think it's still relevant in context of that, is there's already been a lot of remote work in film. That's something that's been coming for a really long time, specifically in motion pictures, specifically when you're accommodating a whole bunch of different clients. And I think that we're just going to see more of it coming in the near future. On the flip side, what breaks my heart is there's a lot of situations like color sessions should be in person because it's really great to be looking at the same monitor and talking, and it's only three or four people in the room. Like, that's not a huge transition nexus. But I do feel like we're going to start to see a lot of, like, remote color sessions that could have been in person move to remote.
0: A lot of our listeners know all too well that some parts of post-production are basically thankless, time-consuming black holes. They pull you in and absolutely annihilate your resources and your energy. You thought you could spend your time making great videos but instead you're in the weeds scouring through footage going back and forth with clients and team members when you're done you're captioning this and that in 850,000 different formats for distribution and to make matters worse you're doing all of this on a tight deadline our friends over at rev.com have found a few ways to free up that nightmarishly inefficient workflow they can make it faster your team more efficient and your process generally more collaborative it's all with the help of their transcripts and captions Find out what you need with the speed of Rev transcripts, send out what you've made with the adaptability of Rev captions, and check out your new favorite post-production tool at Rev.com. That's R-E-V dot com.
1: In tech news, this week, Blackmagic has updated their Video Assist 12G HDR monitors to record internal RAW. So why is this a big deal? First off, let's give a little context. Um, the, The Video Assist series of monitors are really what we think of as monitor recorders. The reason why monitor recorders have been so popular in filmmaking is usually it's a much bigger monitor. So I'm out on a Blackmagic pocket or I'm out on a A7S. I've got like a one or a two inch screen. And this gives me a five or a seven inch screen so I can see my framing better. I can There's usually focus assist tools, which you might not get inside the camera. A lot of them have like false color tools and waveform tools. So they're very popular with filmmakers because they give you a whole host of tools that you don't often have built into, you know, a less expensive camera. If I go out and I buy an $1,800 Sigma FP, I'm likely going to be working with an external monitor in order to get a much bigger image, which is really what we want on set so we can really evaluate our image properly, kick on that false color or that focus assist and really see if we're, we're landing focus. Monitor recorders record to some sort of format. The, the big ones out there are PIX from uh, video devices and then Atomos. And Blackmagic is sort of trying to move into the space a little bit. There's also Odyssey, who makes some of the coolest ones, but haven't been really focused on it lately, and I don't know why. And what those allow you to do is they allow you to put some sort of recording device in them and record directly to them. And this is exciting because a lot of times it saves you a ton of workflow time. Like if I'm out on an A7S 3 that shoots to an internal H.264 file, which is heavily compressed, and which means it's going to take a lot of work for me to transcode it to something usable in post. But if I hook up an external recorder, I often get higher quality out of that HDMI output. And I take that ho- higher quality and I record it straight to ProRes or DNX. And those five met- Formats I can bring right into my editing system and they work faster. So I'm saving myself all sorts of workflow time in post. I'm often getting nicer images if I'm getting a clean out from the HDMI. There's a lot of perks and benefits of that. And then in the last year or two, we've started to see an even cooler benefit, which is some cameras will let you output RAW from the camera and then record RAW in your external recorder. So, like the EVA1, a camera I dearly love, the Panasonic camera, um, it'll let you do RAW. Uh, to ProRes RAW to an Atomos recorder. That's really great. RAW gives you more flexibility in color grading in post. It can be a real boon depending upon what your workflow is. And, but RAW files tend to be a little bigger. Um, and so instead of recording it to the internal, you can record it to the RAW. RAW has now come to Blackmagic's sort of competing device. Now, to be clear, Blackmagic makes a lot of amazing stuff. I color grade and resolve all the time. Um, their cameras are obviously super duper popular. The Monitor series has been slower to take off. Atomos and Pix are really dominant in this market. Atomos really owns this market. The Monitors have been... They had a reputation for looking a little green in the beginning. They fixed the color science lately. But it's just not a place where they've really had a big market. But what's interesting about this release is, first off, internal RAW... So it's great. It's to Blackmagic's RAW format. That's a really nice RAW format that offers some benefits. On top of that, it's RAW to SD cards. There's also a really nice feature of the Blackmagic, which is as a USB-C port and it will record straight to a hard drive. So if I have a, you know, I can go out for 150 bucks and buy a two terabyte like Samsung T5 now, right? Or a one terabyte. I think the two terabytes still more, but the Samsung T5 everybody's got a ton of them, USB-C hard drive, it weighs nothing. I could bungee it to the back of the monitor, hook it up with USB-C, and then I have a one terabyte thing for a little bit less than the one terabyte of storage space costs me when I have to buy a dedicated one for an Atomos. It's also going to be much easier to just take that same hard drive and I just hand it to the editor, plug it in, and they go. Whereas the Atomos, you have to put it in a caddy of some sort. And what tends to happen with the Atomos is I tend to download it and then put the SSD back in my Atomos. Whereas if you just plug the hard drive state into the Blackmagic video assist, you just shoot, fill up that hard drive, give it to editorial, and then you plug in a new hard drive for your next shoot. So it's a different kind of workflow. What's particularly exciting now for me about this is, I believe, and Twitter will remind me if I'm wrong, that this is the first time I'm going to be able to shoot side by side. Like the same camera, the EVA1, will output ProRes RAW to an Atomos, and it will output Blackmagic RAW to a Blackmagic Video Assist. So I can shoot the same setup on both and compare them, because that is actually the kind of thing I enjoy doing. All right, and then our final item of the week is an Ask No Film School question. And this Ask No Film School question... So one note about... Um, Ask no film school is that we do prefer if you use your full name on the boards. And this question comes from Robert. Now, don't want to judge if Robert is your full and complete name. If you are a mononym, um, respect. But you, uh, if not, uh, do, do try and edit with a full board. So, um, Robert asks: uh, I have a zoom lens on a Blackmagic Design camera, and I want to do. Uh, it has manual focus and zoom. Can you add? Can you tell me about a like what kind of setup I would need so I could control zoom and focus from the tripod instead of reaching around and shaking the lens? And this is a really good question, specifically because in the title of the question he mentioned something called Lank, and I wanted to talk a little bit about Lank and talk about why we it doesn't show up in film. So Lank is a remote control protocol for that's very popular in stills cameras. Um, You'll see a lot of stills cameras that have like a lank in port. You'll see it a little bit on video cameras, but it's really not something that is used as much anymore. It was really sort of like a prosumer video thing. But what it originally allowed you to do, which is why the question came up, is it would allow you to have like a little handle on your tripod and you could control focus iris roll and cut through a cable that went up to the camera. And then it would use the internal motors on the lens for it to work. The problem is, is Lank usually was most successful when everything was part of one system. So if you had like an XL1, you might've had a Lank port work really well because the lens is built into the camera body and then you buy a Lank controller from Canon. It's all made by one company. It all really works. You're dealing with a situation where you have a Blackmagic camera and then it's a, you mentioned it's an Emsuiko lens, which is not Blackmagic. And The interface and the compatibility and everything of all that, we don't tend to try and make that work very much in motion pictures. What we usually do in motion pictures is we focus on external ways of controlling the lenses. And we do this because most lenses don't have internal motors. Still lenses do and Panavision DXL lenses do, but a lot of them don't. So usually we want to build a system where if I can put something up that doesn't have an internal motor, um, it is usually preferable. And I do have to say, I, I don't often do Ask No Film Schools where I talk about a specific brand, but if you're looking for an affordable solution, I would look at TILTA. TILTA's low-cost wireless follow-focus setup is ridiculously good for how cheap it is. And its, um, it's controllers are specifically built to be like, really easy to mount onto like a gimbal. So you could control focus, iris and zoom while holding a gimbal and you could easily rig them onto a tripod so that your tripod pistol is giving you focus, iris and zoom control.
2: What's the price range for something like that? And are there other alternatives? So if you
1: don't want wireless, if you want, if you don't go, if you don't mind going like manual, uh, tilta has a hundred dollar manual follow focus. I just, uh, met with someone last week. I'm reviewing something else they have, and they happened to have that with them. And, um, for $100 follow focus, it was crazy good. I mean, there's little hiccupy things about it, but it's $100. Um, the, you're probably, if if your goal is you don't want to be reaching around to the front of the camera, you want your control from the back, you'll probably want something wireless. Is the Tilta like $1,200 or something else insanely cheap? The Tilta is ridiculously cheap, especially because that comes with like two controllers and two motors. So it's not like, I think there's even a wireless Tilta set up for like $500 for like one motor. So this has been Charles Hain. Uh, You should check me out on the Instagram at Charles Hain or on the Twitter at Charles Hain. Uh, You can also check out my upcoming web series, SaltyPirate.tv. It is launching later this spring. It'll be on Ficto and Amazon Prime and Vimeo VOD. And I'll be running a whole bunch of articles about it. I also wrote a book called Color Grading 101. So you can check that out and all of the good stuff.
0: This is Michelle De La Tour. Austin, we love you. Nashville, we love you. Please get in touch uh, if you have a film at South by Southwest or if you're what your ideas are for remote working to share with the world. And stay safe, everybody.
2: And I'm George Edelman, editor in chief at No Film School. And uh, you can check us out at nofilmschool.com. See all the posts we're putting up. Follow our coverage of what's going on with coronavirus, how it may affect future festivals, filmmakers in general, and certainly NAB, which is coming up soon. Uh, You can find us on Twitter at No Film School, our Facebook page, No Film School. And uh, yeah, rate, comment and like the podcast. And thanks for listening.